Many of you will know, because I mention it a lot, that I'm a fan of listening to podcasts. I find them actually really helpful because a lot of times the inane chatter on the radio doesn't do much for me. So with podcasts, you can listen to people who can expand your horizons and maybe challenge or inform you. I was listening to a podcast a few months ago, and it may shock you to realize that I still have room to grow in my relationships because they had a person who was there speaking about relationships. She was a relationship expert. And one of the questions she was asked was about people uh, and some advice about dating and how to find people of character. Here was something that struck me, though. She told the story of a, a woman who was really, really attractive woman who came and was going for counseling with her. And she said uh, she heard, told a story, a very sad story about how hard it is to be beautiful. And I was thinking to myself exactly what the counselor said, which is, oh, cry me a river. It's so hard to be beautiful, right? But what she actually said was that it, it was something that opened her eyes a lot because it can be difficult if you're a person who has a great deal of beauty, just like if you have a great deal of riches, is that it attracts a lot of people who love the things that are surface to you but don't actually care much about the character that's most important. She said it was actually difficult for this woman a lot because she was very attractive and attracted a lot of creeps who wanted her just for her body and didn't actually want to explore what kind of person she was and what kind of character and depth. And sadly, we all know as well that people can be very attractive on the outside and can be a complete mess on the inside. Outward beauty is no indication whatsoever that your life will be easy if you lived it with them. I mention that not just because it's great relationship advice, and I know Scott has often told me how difficult it is being beautiful when he's dating. But I do tell you because, of course, I think that this is something that reflects on the gospel we have today. Because these are words known often as the Beatitudes, which Jesus says are extremely beautiful and poetic words. Listen to them again. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Uh, in, in funerals many times, in memorial services, we hear these things and people ask them, families ask to have them read because they're comforting and beautiful words about those who are weeping, being comforted and helped. But the same danger with it comes to a beautiful person comes to a beautiful passage like this. We look to its beauty and its comfort And we don't look deeper to see what is it actually telling us, what is it challenging us with, and how is it helping us grow in virtue and in Christian life. These words of Jesus that I read today from Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 20, are words that are not just intended to comfort us, but instead are intended to challenge us to grow into the full stature of what Christ has made us, and to more accurately reflect the virtues of the God who made us. I'd like to speak to you today about those things and to start off by looking at this section of the Beatitudes and to say that what we are being told here is we're being told both a comfort and a challenge, a comfort that blessings will come to you, but the challenge of holding on to the blessings that God will bring us in the future instead of orienting our lives trying to hang on to the blessings that only last for the present time. It is primarily, I think, a passage that challenges us to look for the blessings that will come when God's promises are fulfilled and not to hold on to the false promises and the false blessings that this world gives to us and which will pass away. Now, why do I say it's a real challenge for us, uh, a challenge to look towards the future and the promises that God makes and their fulfillment? If you listen to it carefully throughout this passage, what you'll notice is there's a consistent drumbeat of future tense in its verbs. By future tense, I mean always referring to things that are coming, not to things that are. Listen to what Jesus says, uh, verse uh, 21. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be fulfilled. Not you are fulfilled, but you will be. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, etc. And he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. Not right now, but in heaven. Or look a little bit further when Jesus tells you to do some really difficult things about loving your enemies and blessing those who curse you. He says this in verse 35. Why do you do this? Because your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High for he's kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. What Jesus keeps pointing to is not saying, follow my words, follow my instruction and it's just going to be easy from this point on. It's going to be a gravy train if you're following me. No, he says, in fact, what the great blessing I give to you is something that requires a tremendous challenge, the tremendous of believing that what God has said will actually be counted on and true. Now, one of the reasons why I say that and why it's something that, that God is saying you will be blessed because you're holding on to a promise is actually those of you who are listening carefully will know. And it seems at first like I'm undermining my argument. Everything is will, will, will. But in fact, the very first of the Beatitudes and Beatitudes comes from Latin, uh, uh, which just means blessing. That's why we call it the Beatitudes. The very first blessing that Jesus pronounces doesn't seem to be a future tense. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But as Jesus keeps saying future, 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 what do I keep saying? Future, future, future. And then he begins with something that is now in the present. I think it's an indication of what Jesus means about the blessing that comes when we hold on to the future. This is, and you'll be impressing your friends all week long if you use this word, this is an example of a proleptic reading of the scripture. Proleptic, remember that. You know what proleptic means? Proleptic means a future event that is so certain and sure that it casts its effects into the present. Now, if you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around it, I was thinking of an example that uh, maybe is not a pleasant one, but I think illustrates what I mean. Imagine that you're a teenager and you're getting to an age where your parents say, you know what, I can trust you staying home while we go away. So we're going to go away uh, for a week uh, of vacation and you can stay here. Uh, the only thing I'm telling you is do not take and drive my Mustang. You can drive your old beater, don't drive my Mustang. Sure, Dad, no problem. But your girlfriend says, you know, we should go to the movies this weekend and uh, maybe out for a bite to eat. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, she's not going to be impressed with my old clunker. My dad's not going to know the difference, so why don't I take the keys to that Mustang and go out and we'll just go to the theater and go to the restaurant next door and come right back, no problem. All great. You're going to the theater, you go to the restaurant, and you come and you pull out of the parking lot, and the guy's parked a little too close to you, and as you pull out, what do you hear? Scream! What's happened? You cut the corner too closely, and you get out and you realize there is a long scratch along the paint. And what do you say? I'm a dead man. Why do you say that? Well, your parents aren't coming back for another three days, so you're not punished yet. Why do you say I'm a dead man? Because you are absolutely certain whether they're coming back tomorrow or three days from now, you are going to get punished. And that means over the next three days, you're not thinking, oh, how wonderful it is. You're thinking the looming threat of a punishment is so real. I feel it in my soul. I might as well be punished right now. Now, that's an example of a proleptic interpretation. Something in the future, I'm so certain of it, affects me in the present. Jesus is saying in a good way here. Not about a future punishment. He's saying yours is the kingdom of God. If you hold on to and believe the promises that God gives you and says your reward is there, your poverty will be replaced with riches. If you hold on to this with your whole self, he says, it actually casts a light on your present. 
You know that great Frank Sinatra song? One of the things that I loved when I was in my uh, teens and 20s is that I discovered Frank Sinatra, and there's a great song I really love. Uh, I've got plenty of nothing, and nothing's plenty for me, right? And what he's saying as he's singing that song is, I think, something getting to what Jesus is talking about here, which is, you know, real poverty, I'm not going to pretend poverty is a good thing. I think this is descriptive. He's not saying, go and seek to be poor. He doesn't tell you to do that, but instead what he's saying is poverty is going to happen in your life. How is it that you feel rich and you walk with a lightness of heart for the same thing that Frank Sinatra was talking about? I am not obsessed with the things that I need to hold in my hand. I'm not obsessed with getting uh, Ikea furniture. I'm not obsessed with having a, a slate shower. I'm not obsessed with all the things that many people are striving for in this life. I am happy with what I have because what I have is Christ. There's something Jesus warns again and again about, about riches and wealth, like he says in this passage. Woe to you who are rich now. Because it is a way of corrupting us into holding on to the values, the things that pass away, instead of thinking about the things that are eternal. And that, unfortunately, is a profound, profound challenge for us in this modern age. It's always been a profound challenge. For us, it's even more. I think in any age, people have looked at what Jesus has said and sort of thought, that kind of turns upside down everything that I count on. He says, blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weeping, those who are excluded and hated. Nobody really wants that. Why is Jesus saying this? But he says, woe to you who are rich, who are full, laughing, and when everybody speaks well of you, well, that's what I want, right? The problem in our modern age is that in the past, people, most people would never attain those things. If you think even to my grandparents' generation, and my grandfather would tell me about riding the rails and chopping wood in the Depression just to get a hot meal at the end of the day, not to assemble riches and a pension, it's just to keep himself alive. And the challenge of that generation, my generation has never known and most people, our generation, does not know what it's like to wonder where the next meal is coming from. We can hold on to the things the world promises and believe to ourselves that these are things that are what makes life valuable, and yet they can be taken away. A writer uh, known as David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, he's worth reading, an interesting fellow. Uh, but one of the things that he's written about when he talks about the challenges of the modern age is that he says, because of our wealth, and because of our education, and because of our opportunities, there are two competing sets of values, and one of those sets of values is overtaking the other and making us worse people. He says there are two sets of values people strive for, the resume values and the eulogy values. Resume values are the ones that you can put down in your resume when you're looking for a job. I went to Harvard, and I graduated at the top of my class, and I'm uh, great with my financial acumen, and I volunteered at this, all the things you can list on your resume. He says, most of those things are not things that you want to have read about you when you're lying in a casket and your family's around you grieving. And I can tell you this honestly. How valuable is that I scored a certain GPA? Nobody cares when you're lying there in the casket. What they care about is, is this a good husband? Was it a good father? What kind of person was he? Was? What kind of character? One of the things that David Brooks talks about is that everything in this world seems to scream to us, work for the resume values. Think about social media. If you're on Instagram, what do we see? We see an absolute list of everything says woe to you. All of the people who are on Instagram are showing you pictures of sitting on a beach in a private island and I'm rich or clubbing with VIPs. Or they show you pictures of having a fantastic meal where you're at, uh, at this three-star Michelin restaurant and they've arranged your meal in such a beautiful way you've got to take a picture of it. And what do you measure your value from? All the likes I got. Look at how many likes and followers I have. The problem is everything in our world seems to say this is what makes you a worthwhile, valuable person. 
But Jesus says, there's a different set of values that the kingdom operates under. These are the eulogy values David, Cross, or David Brooks talks about. But even more so, they're not just what happens in those moments in the funeral where good things are said. What is it that God will say to us? We find ourselves standing before him and him saying, I gave you this amount of time. I gave you this blessing. What is it we want to hear from him? You know, you did a great job graduating at the top of your class or you had a really fat bank account when you checked out. Or do we really want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You showed the world what I was like because you modeled the virtues of your creator. Jesus is saying to us not, oh, it's great to be poor or it's bad to be rich. I think he's warning us and saying, where is it you put your great hopes? Because if you put your hopes on your wealth and the food you eat and the likes and the ways that people talk to you, then you will find yourself disappointed because these things will pass away. Instead, set your heart in the things that are eternal. Elsewhere, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where do you put your treasure? In the things that moths, moths and rust cannot corrupt. Put your treasure in the heavenly values that Jesus shows us. You will be blessed when you do. But there's another thing that Jesus tells us. He challenges us in belief. He says, put your faith in God's way, put your faith in the reward that will come with being faithful. But he also says there's a profound challenge in living it out in action. And he gives us some very startling and difficult examples of what it looks like to live according to the values of the kingdom instead of the values of the world. And these are some of the most challenging passages in all of Scripture. Listen to what Jesus says after the Beatitudes and woes are over. He says, I say to you that, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And if that's not hard enough, he says, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Anyone who takes away, uh, takes away your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. If anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others what you would have them do to you. These are not things that are easy to do. They don't even seem like things that are reasonable to do. I mean, one of the things that I noticed uh, as I was reading and preparing I should say, just as an aside, this is an excellent little book. Um, it's about Matthew's version of this, but it's, it's a similar thing that Luke gives. It's called The Sermon on the Mount by Dale Allison. And one of the things he noticed is, is that some writers, if you look at Leo Tolstoy, a famous writer in the 19th and 20th century, who really took it to heart, what he said was is to say, uh, in fact, we should abolish the courts and abolish government because you shouldn't ever reciprocate. What you should always do is just give, give, give. And Leo Tolstoy left his family in absolute poverty because he signed away all the rights to his books. We still read his books today, uh, but his family died in poverty because he took this in a way that caused real damage. Look at this and you sort of think to yourself, man, this is crazy. Jesus is demanding these sorts of things of us. How can he say that kind of thing? I'd like to suggest that why Jesus is saying all of these things, it's really for two reasons. The two reasons are that it takes an extra special application of God's grace to change this world. If we simply stick around with what is due, we will never change this world because what the world needs is more than what's due to them. What the world needs is an overflow of God's love. And secondly, it tells us that our goal in life is not to win results. It may very well be that you love your enemies and bless those who curse you and they never change. But what it's saying to you is what your goal in life should be is to embody the virtues of what God is like. And God is someone who is merciful and just and loves those who simply don't deserve it. You know, we look at this example here about the kind of love and the attention that it's called for. And I think one of the things that keeps coming to me is the effect that this can have on you when you're the recipient of it. 
You know, any of you who have been married for a long time or anybody who's been in a friendship or a parental relationship for a long time knows that, yes, there's the warp and woof, the challenges of any relationship. But I can tell you there are points in relationship that you'll get to where, honestly, you really mess up in some big way, right? Maybe you really let your friend down. Maybe your, your spouse uh, was really hurt by something you did or you failed to do. And I've been in that situation before. Do you know what it is like when something like that that covers you with shame, when you know you've genuinely hurt, and you come to that person wanting desperately to avoid them or to pretend you didn't do anything wrong, and yet it eats away at you. And instead of that person saying, I'm going to give you back exactly what you deserve, instead they say, I forgive you. Honestly, it is one of the best feelings in the world. It is like a weight lifted off of you. It is like a cool, refreshing rain in the middle of a sizzling hot summer day. This is what Jesus offers to us. When he comes to the woman caught in adultery who has done something gravely wrong, he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Supremely, what does he say on the cross? To people who aren't just being mean to him, people who are torturing him to death. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. If we look at what Christ's life is, we can say to ourselves, well, he doesn't really mean to do things that cost us a lot in service and love of others. But we look at Jesus's actual life, Jesus's actual life, embodying love for others. What transformed this world is his willingness to say, I'll go beyond what's required of me, beyond what is due, beyond reciprocation. And I will be a person who gives so deeply and profoundly that I have the opportunity to change other people. This is a challenge for us to start looking towards the world around us and ask ourselves, not just how do we get back at those who have hurt us, but how do we be honest with God and say, I am feeling hurt, I am feeling broken, Lord, I give this to you, help me to have the grace to love the person who hurt me and the person who disappointed me. One of the great things that we can do for this world is to say, I'm not just going to do what's required of me, I'm going to go beyond what's required of me, or as Jesus says, go the extra mile. To love a person in such a way that they're transformed by it. And we look around at this world and the stories that people tell where their lives are transformed, it's not because they're on the wrong track and people gave them all that was due to them. It was they're on the wrong track and a person who knew they didn't deserve it loved them and spent time with them and showed them a better way and their lives changed. That's the way Jesus does with us. We don't need to ask whether we deserve it. All we really need to do is to recognize that Jesus loves us far more than we earn. Jesus simply loves us because he wants to change us. The other way, though, is to say how we're changed when we do this is to say our goal is to be like God is. Is our goal really to always get success? The fact of the matter is, is that God loves this world and he loves it deeply. But he knows very well that an application of this love sometimes means that people, instead of loving and changing, their hearts are, in fact, hardened. Think of Jesus in John's gospel. In John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus dies. He raises Lazarus from the dead, but we're told something really interesting in John's gospel, that many were so amazed they came to follow Jesus, but a little note says, the Pharisees and the religious leaders resolved at that moment to kill him. This is the greatest miracle the world has ever seen, a man risen from the dead, and at that very moment the world wants to kill him out of jealousy, anger, and frustration that Jesus is leading people away from their authority. There are times where our love for another person or going the extra mile does not change them. But God still loved Lazarus and rose him from the dead, and he still loved this world instead of condemning it. 
we recognize that when we do this to serve the Lord, we don't do it just because we think we'll get results. We do it because it makes us more like the God that we serve. Someone who does not quickly get angered and someone who does not punish people just because they're wrong, but instead applies push, applies forgiveness with the desire that people be freed from the grip of sin. Now, the last thing I have to mention, though, is, is that I mentioned earlier when it comes to Leo Tolstoy and his opinion of what this means. I think probably many of you will resonate with that, thinking, well, what about if I'm in an abusive relationship? As Jesus say, just stick around and take it. What happens if the government pushes me around? What happens if I'm abused as an employee and my employer is not respecting my rights? Here's another really great thing about this book that it talks about. It says it's interesting how when Jesus speaks about these things, his application is not to institutions. It's not about statecraft or about how to reform the judicial system. It's about how we interact in our interpersonal relationships. I think that's really important to hold on to because unlike what Leo Tolstoy thought, Jesus never says judiciary and judges should stop judging things. If you're in an abusive relationship, yes, you are called to forgive your abuser, but you're also called to phone the police and make it stop. But what the state is called to do is to recognize it as a responsibility towards good order and good governance. And it's the same thing, too, for yourself. When you find yourself being abused, what you need to ask yourself is, is this something that can bring real redemption or is it something that really needs uh, another person to be punished for? That's why we have an institution like the judiciary and the police courts. What we're called to do is to simply ask ourselves, what is it that will redeem this person and bring what is best? Ask yourself, not only can I, how can I forgive, not only how can I let a person go, but how can I go the extra mile to look at the people around me and say, how can I be like Christ is to them? What is the best thing I can do? And sometimes the best thing I can do is to make sure a person gets help so that they, don't ch so that they change the behavior that is abusive and is wrong. Now I say all of these things to you, and it's a difficult passage, I know. But why we always read this on all saints is because we recognize in the saints people who saw around in this world the things that they could do, but said instead, the thing that I want to do is to hold on to the values that Jesus gives. And they're an example to us that average men and women can do that through the application of God's grace. What are we called to do? To look at the example of the saints and say, they are blessed, they've received the reward, and we believe we too will receive that reward if we follow in their example and take seriously the words that Jesus gives us. They're not without cost, they are of a high cost. But remember, we're following someone who gave up everything by pouring his life out on the cross, but a person who is able to be raised from the dead because of his absolute trust in God. God will raise us from the dead. And he will bless our efforts, even if at times they don't seem like they're making much effort, or making much change. And he will show us that the virtues he shows us to live by are the virtues that in the end are the most important. Let's hold on to those Beatitudes. Hold on to Jesus' commands and find in ourselves to be an agent of change in the world and an agent that is changed within more and more into the character of